We're going to start with a little bit of self-reflection this morning. I hope you are ready to self-reflect. Um, I am someone who happens to think that your favorite movies, your favorite bands, your favorite kind of music, that all that stuff kind of tells a lot about who you are. So I want you to think back to when you were somewhere in the range of like 8 to 10 years old. And see if you can remember um, what your favorite movie was and what your favorite like band or something was. Virgil, they would have been moving pictures at that time, if you, if you want to look at them that way. Can you remember? Can you sort of remember? Yes, Virgil can, which I have no doubt of, actually. To see Heidi. Okay. Okay. Well, I remember what my favorite stuff was at that age, and it's gonna, like, you're gonna wish you were as cool as I was. My favorite movie was La Bamba. I don't know why. I even had a poster in my room. Uh, and my favorite band was Air Supply. It's true. It's the first uh, cassette tape that I bought was Air Supply's Greatest Hits. This probably explains a lot about who I am and why I'm so weird. But over, those, over the years, those answers have changed. You know, I don't necessarily like the same stuff that I did when I was eight or 10 years old. Although I have to say that The Goonies was one of my favorite movies at the time, and that one still holds up. Still holds up pretty well. But my answers have changed every time. Why? Because I've grown or I've seen new things or I've learned new things. And so different kinds of stories or different kinds of music become more and more important to me. Now, I know that realistically speaking, your favorite movie, your favorite book, your favorite TV show, your favorite band, that those are not really identifiers uh, of who someone is, except it kind of is. Because you can tell learn something about someone based on the answers to those questions. So let's, let's shift categories here and talk about a category that is a little bit more serious. We are a church of Christ, and many of us have grown up in the church of Christ. If you grew up in the church of Christ, just raise your hand, okay? A lot of us have. Not everybody, but a lot of us have. Um, so here's a question for you. What is it that makes a church of Christ? What are their identifying features? Now, the answer to that question depends on a lot of factors. Um, it depends on, you know, what church you're talking about, where that church is located, and what time in history are you thinking of. Uh, Fifty years ago, there were a lot of things that really, really mattered to churches of Christ and still really, really matter to churches of Christ all over the country. Uh, things like what women could and could not do uh, in worship services, uh, acapella music, uh, even things like how you spell Church of Christ. Do you know this one? Yeah. You had to have a little C on church and a big C on Christ. Um, that was a rule, and if you, did, if you got that wrong it would be pointed out to you. Yeah, it's true. We're a kooky bunch. We're, we're a kooky bunch. 
Um, so within our church and with a lot of churches in California, some of us, uh, some of these churches still hold on to some of these things pretty tightly. Um, I remember uh, when Nisha's sister got married, so this would have been in 2001, winter of 2001, uh, we had her reception at a different Church of Christ in town because they had a bigger uh, meeting room, newer meeting room, and the rule was that they could play um, secular instrumental music, but they couldn't play any Christian instrumental music because that was a sin. So that was a rule that this church had, which honestly is, is not even close to the craziest things uh, that, I've, that I've heard or seen through the, through the years. And there are some members of the Church of Christ who would walk through our door and would see Megan playing a ukulele or keyboard or would see me with my tattoos and weird hair and they would uh, not recognize us as a church of Christ and then maybe write about false advertising on Google. Not saying that's ever happened, but Google it later. (laughs) That's true too. Uh, What I want you to think about this morning, though, is your own journey. Uh, As you have matured over the years, assuming you have matured over the years, (laughs) Kathy, yeah, that's right. that there are some things that used to be really important to you as a member of the Churches of Christ. And some of these things were so important to you that you believed if someone else did these things differently that they were going to hell. Like, we believed that at certain times and places over some of these issues and many others. Now, you may not hold some of those same beliefs now. It might have changed. Uh, I hope it has about some of these things, considering you're here. Um, But maybe as you look back to remembering uh, whether it was this community or another community you were a part of, when they went through those changes of moving kind of from one thing that is really important and reevaluating that one thing and trying to decide if that one thing is still who we are. Uh, Whether it's over instrumental music, which is a big one, um, or women doing things in service or, or whatever it is. And at the very least, during that time, you probably had to ask yourself some difficult questions. You know, my grandfather believed this. And if I believe something different now, does that mean he was wrong and I'm right? Now, that's a tough question and one that is really difficult to answer. But when you think about all of those things and all the processes that maybe we went through and maybe hard discussions that you had uh, with your family members or arguments or whatever these things, however these things came out, the one thing that's true is that it is difficult for us to let go of things that give us identity. Um, And that leads us to something that's very important for us to consider today as we look at the next section of the book of Romans. And uh, the, qu- the question that I kind of want us to kick over, because it's the question that kind of Paul presents to the Christians in Rome, 
is how can something mean so much and yet not matter at all? How can something mean so much and yet not matter at all? Well, Bryce, it can't be both, but it is. Do you have to give up the significance of something that was identity giving? And this is a real challenge that the church in Rome was facing, and we need to appreciate its significance in order to understand where Paul was going, but particularly why. So if it helps you this morning, I want you to think about generations of Church of Christ people sitting in a room, (laughs) disagreeing on what kind of music can be sung or how it should be sung or who can do the singing. I want you to think about some of those things as we go through these examples. What would those dynamics be like? What hills would people die on? And what lines would they draw? Now, before we jump in today, we need to make one thing very, very clear so that this doesn't get lost uh, somewhere in our reading today. Paul believes that the Jews are the chosen people of God, period. Um, Throughout this discussion, he is not bad-mouthing Jewish people. What he is trying to do is to speak directly to them, to matters that really only speak to them and don't speak to the Gentile Christians. So he has to be blunt and he has to be straightforward, but he is not anti-Jew, okay? Uh, Jesus was a Jew who followed all the Jewish religious customs. Paul was a Jew who followed all the Jewish religious customs and still held tightly to his identity as a Jew even after becoming a Christian. So this is not a slam on Jewish people. Got Got it? Good. So there were some things that they needed to learn and these lessons weren't They weren't easy. But here's our starting point. Paul believes that being a Jew, that if you are a Jew and a Christian, that you have an advantage over being a Gentile and a Christian. Jews were the ones to whom God had communicated and who theoretically knew God better than anyone else. The Jews had the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and um, that story that is told in the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament is the story of how God chose the Israelites and how he led them and blessed them and was faithful to all of the promises he had made. Therefore, the Jews have a technical advantage because they have more knowledge of God. They understand who God is. They do not have to learn from scratch how God loves the people that he calls his own. They do not have to learn uh, or be taught about how God always keeps his promises. They have lived that out, and their history shows them these things. When they celebrate Passover, they are celebrating the deliverance that God brought to their people when he took them out of Egypt. So all of that is true. But even so, they need to understand how some fundamental things have changed when Jesus came into the world. It would be easy, knowing that you are the chosen people, to want to continue to be the chosen people and to believe that others who, came, who come to Christ need to adopt the practices of the chosen people. After all, God is the one who prescribed all of these things. They matter, don't they? 
So Paul needed them to know that while God still loved them, he was doing more in the world than just saving them or converting people to a Jewish form of Christianity. What God was doing was bigger than that. So here's the first thing. Now, again, these are big deals. All of these points are big deals today, so keep that in mind. First thing, to be chosen by God is not to be exempted from God's wrath. Yes, you have a special position as God's chosen people, but that doesn't mean that ultimately you will be viewed as different from anyone else. Everyone is going to face judgment in the end. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 2, and we'll start in verses 17 through 24. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay. First of all, ouch. Am I right? Here's the situation. There were some Jewish Christians who believed that because they were Jews, they would be exempt from God's judgment and wrath. It was kind of like being a Jewish Christian was like being double-dipped, you know? You had salvation all around you. And um, I'm a Jew, I have Jesus, and I'm good. And in answer to this concept within the community, Paul starts out by actually listing a lot of the advantages that they have. Uh, knowledge of God, um, consider themselves to be a guide to those who don't know as much as they do about God, um, and, and, and they feel justified because they have the law, which is the embodiment of knowledge and truth, like they have all of this in their toolbox. And Paul is not really saying that any of this is untrue. These are gifts of the Jewish people. This is who they could be, because of their knowledge of God and his law. There's just one problem. They can teach all day long about about what someone should do for God, but they are not upholding that same truth in their own lives. This is the issue that Paul has with everyone, but that he is very seriously directing to his Jewish readers. There is a difference in Paul's mind between words and deeds, between appearances and reality. It is, in fact, of no benefit at all to belong to the chosen people of God if what one does is in complete contrast to what God actually wants his people to be. 
You claim to be the chosen of God, but you do not act like the chosen of God. You tell people they should not steal while your hand is stealing from someone else. It is such a contradiction between what is claimed and, what, and, and how what is done colors that. The, the result of all of this, of them speaking about God but not acting like God's people, is that people are talking trash about God. Oh, you know, Randy's a Christian. That tells me all I need to know about Christians and their God. And how is someone supposed to take God seriously if God's people are claiming to be morally superior and are not, are plainly not? In this situation, there can be no possibility for the Jewish people to claim any sort of exemption from divine wrath simply because they are the chosen people. Because simply being the chosen people is not enough. Uh, look at it this way. Uh, Nisha has celiac disease, which means she can't have uh, any gluten in her food. So there are a lot of places that claim something is gluten-free. Yeah. And, um, but when Nisha goes there, she needs there not to be gluten in her food. She needs to make sure that no gluten has touched her plate, her cup, her fork, her spoon, whatever she's using. Uh, she needs to make sure that someone didn't touch gluten and then touch her fork, her plate, her cup, you know, all that different sort of stuff. And here's the thing. If someone claims that the whole thing is gluten-free and clean, Nisha will find out whether that is true. Right? It doesn't matter what they claimed if there's gluten somewhere. <laughs> it is not gluten-free. And Paul is making this point. You can claim to be the chosen people of God who represent God here on earth, but you sure don't act like it. And you're not acting like it undoes whatever it is you're saying to the point where God is blasphemed among others. Number two, chosenness is not a matter of outward marks. Marks? Get, get choked up just thinking about circumcision. <clears throat> chosenness is not a matter of outward marks, but rather a inner reality. Now, this is a big one here, too. He's kind of undone some chosenness, and now he's coming at circumcision. And why is it a big deal? Because circumcision was a big deal to the Jewish people. It was, it was literally the physical mark that said they were the people of God. It was the mark that included them in all the promises that God had made to his people. It was the most sacred of rituals, the key of being a part, the key to being a part of the kingdom of God. So listen to what Paul says here in verses 25 through 29. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as those who had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Okay, first thing here. Paul does not say that circumcision is a pointless ritual. Okay? He does not say that. It has meaning and it gives identity. But as it is true with everything else that Paul has said, the physical mark of circumcision does not matter if you don't follow through with what the mark is supposed to mean. Circumcision identifies you as one of God's people. It also puts you under the law. But if you break the law, then what does it really mean? This, this contract that you have with God, that you are a part of his covenant and his promises, but you're breaking the law. Oh, and you're circumcised. Well, great. You're still breaking the law. These two things go hand in hand. Circumcision does not only tie you to God's promises, it ties you to following the law. Therefore, again, if you don't follow it, the outward mark doesn't mean anything. But here's where he gets really like twisting the dagger a little bit because they would have had a really tough time with this. Conversely, if someone follows the law but aren't circumcised, which means they are a Gentile, won't it be like they were circumcised because they did all that a child of God should do? What? Like, you need to slow your roll, Paul. You can't mean what it is that you're saying. Oh, but there's more. And if they, in fact, follow the law, they will be able to condemn you for your failure in claiming to be one of God's people. And this is the stinger of this part of the passage. His Jewish readers would have been more than insulted by this. That Paul has taken one of the, the most significant ritual um, for them as a people and has basically said, Gentiles can do better in living it out and they don't need to be circumcised and they can judge you for what you do. Like this is, this is radical stuff here. It's a significant turning of the tables where those who believe they had an advantage all of a sudden become disadvantaged by the very advantage they're claiming. I am one of God's people. I am circumcised. I am tied to his promises. Yep, you sure are. And guess what else that comes with? And he makes this other point, which is a tough one. Who is capable of following the law? That's not what he says. He doesn't say no one. Instead, he says anyone. It's not you being Jewish that allows you to follow the law. It's not you being circumcised that allows you to follow the law. You have a choice to follow the law just like everyone else does. And in the end, what is it that matters? It matters if you follow it or you don't. So to be chosen is to be chosen to serve God concretely in one's life, not to be granted some sort of immunity from God's wrath and punishment. Now, here's why this is so hard. It, it, it breaks the relationship between God and his people down to its most base elements. It takes all of the magic out of it. Um, it, 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 it makes it so 
so plain. It's a, it's a simplification that would have been really hard for the Jewish Christians to follow because it's so transactional. You know what I mean? Like, God has chosen you and you follow his law and that's what this is. So why did Paul need to say these kinds of words and why did he need them to come to an understanding of who they are in relationship to God in this way? Why is this so important? And if you're not sure it's important, he's going to come back to this again and again and again and again. And again. I just felt like I needed one more. <clears throat> in order for them to grow in their faith, Paul needed them to hold the importance of these things. They don't have to get rid of it but they need to understand them in a different way. Because Paul is not the one who's saying their relationship with God is transactional. They have made their relationship with God transactional. I am yours. I do this. Back and forth. And here comes the big reveal, the thing that Paul really wants them to understand. The circumcision that God actually wants for you is not an outward mark. The outward mark is simply a sign of what is going on inside of you. And what is going on inside of you when you become one of God's people is that your heart is circumcised. It is changed. It is given over to God. You are Jewish inside, not outside. And that transformation that happens in you, uh, Paul called it earlier a repentant heart or an unrepentant heart. That change that happens in you is the Spirit of God working in you. And if you are going to become something as a Jewish Christian, become this. Someone whose heart has been changed by the living God. Not just someone whose body has been changed. Or who can quote the law. Or who can tell other people what to do. Don't be that, be this. Someone whose heart is circumcised for God. So, after breaking all of this down, there's a question that should kind of come to our minds, and which is this. Does it matter if you're Jewish at all? Um, Paul's answer may surprise you, what he says about this. Paul wants to answer this question, does being Jewish matter? And his answer is a bit surprising. Let's look in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been trusted with the very words of God. Okay, so the greatest advantage of all is that the chosen people are the ones with whom God has communicated, and they are therefore the ones who best know who God is. And even more so, they are the ones to whom God gave the promises of the covenant, first to Abraham and then to David. Jesus has come through that line and through those promises. God made promises to the Jewish people that he made to no other people on earth. This is their great advantage. They know who God is. Paul is not trying to tear down the Jewish people. He's trying to help them understand what it is that actually makes them blessed. What it is that makes them blessed. 
And what he wants them to know is, look, you don't have to give up who you have been in order to be the people of God now. You don't have to suddenly become un-Jewish, become Gentile. Like, that's not what he's telling them. He believes with all of his heart that the Jewish people were and are blessed because of their knowledge of God and all that God has done for them. And that should be something that drives them forward. And God will remain faithful to the promises he made regardless of how much people disobey him. From Romans 3, 3 through 4. What if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. It is Paul's good news that God will not reply in kind to his people. Like all, he's, not, he's not saying now that none of that matters, that everything he just said about it's what you do and a circumcision of the heart, and like he's not saying none of that matters. He's hinting at something he hasn't even talked about yet. What's one thing that Paul has not talked about yet? The gospel. He hasn't even breached salvation yet. And we're into chapter 3. Right? <clears throat> so he has good news for them. God remains faithful. And the faithfulness does not depend on reciprocal human faithfulness. If every human being proves faithless to God, God remains faithful. And however God's promises may be tested, he will stay true to the promises he's made. And given the picture that Paul has been painting throughout Romans 1 and 2, this is a necessary statement to kind of start to balance things out. Um, and it's the start of him bringing things back around to where Paul wants them to be. But he needs them to understand it is we who are unfaithful. It is not God. God has made his promises and he will keep his promises no matter how unfaithful we may be. And he's shifting the emphasis away in this passage from what we do toward what God has done and will do. And this is an important shift. And lastly, the fact that God's goodness comes out in our sinfulness does not mean that God will not punish us for what we have done. Okay, so Paul is walking all throughout the book of Romans. He's walking on this tight wire, right? And while he's... While he's in this section of the, type, uh, of the tight wire, high wire, the wind is blowing this way, okay? So he has to correct his stance and lean into that wind. But when he takes five more steps, the wind is blowing this way. And so he has to lean the other way to stay on the tightrope. You understand? So about every half chapter, the wind changes, he lays a foundation for what he's trying to teach, and then he brings it back, but then he responds to questions that he's anticipating. So look at this here from Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 as we finish up. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? 
Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. So what is he anticipating people thinking? Okay, so you're telling me that we all break the law and we don't live under it. You're telling me that even though we break the law, God's faithfulness is proven because of how he holds his promises. So if we do more bad things, doesn't that allow God to be more gooder? And the answer that Paul has for them is a resounding uh, no. It does not work that way. It does not work that way. God is still going to judge based on what we do, and God has every right to do so. So what do we learn from this section? Um, Number one, it's not what you know, it's it's what you do. Really is. Knowledge is good and a blessing, but if your actions don't reflect your knowledge, then your knowledge is not serving any purpose. And if you know the good, living, loving God, your actions will reflect that. Amen? Amen. Secondly, our outsides are going to match our insides. What we do is going to match the state of our hearts. And if our hearts are repentant or they have been circumcised for God, then our actions will be proof that there has been change inside of us. Those who know Jesus should act differently than those who do not. Therefore, your actions will either validate or invalidate everything you claim to be. All that you claim, rituals, identification, uh, covenant, favoritism, uh, none of those things matter if your actions don't follow up on you claiming to be a child of God. Fourthly, God is always faithful even when we're not. And this is the best of news because, in, because Paul is proving that Jew or Gentile, we're not really very faithful people. And not in the way we should be. And lastly, God is going to judge, righteously so, based on our actions. Okay. So this is the groundwork that he has been laying. I got bad news for you. It gets a little bit worse <laughs> before it gets better. So the question that we have going through all of this is, well, again, why is this necessary? And it's at this moment where I want you to reflect again on maybe some arguments or discussions or issues that you have gotten caught up on over the years. I want you to think about relationships that were broken, people that left this church, never to come back because of decisions that were made about some of these identifying things. People don't talk to one another anymore. And the community is broken. Why? Because sometimes we are very guilty of taking something good and making that ritual more important than God or our salvation. And in fact, sometimes... We have denied others salvation because of a ritual. We're not alone in this. Churches of Christ are not alone in this. It's done in every church of every flavor all over the world. So that's why Paul needs to do this, and that's why we need to hear this. 
We need to have what this is all about in our relationship with God stripped down to the nuts and bolts because the gospel is more powerful if we grasp just how much we need it. We may want to answer all this right now and say, thank you, Jesus. But Paul keeps stringing it out. Why? Because we need to feel uncomfortable. We need to feel seen through. That God knows who we are and knows what we're about and knows what we do so that by the time Paul takes us to the gospel, we can praise Jesus for what he has done for us. Amen.